Welcome to Talking History with Farnham U3A History Group. Today, Michael Abair talks about how the West was lost or won, depending on your point of view. Part B. Now the Wild West came about because of the need and wish of the people in the East to have land that was rarely available in the eastern part of America, and it was stoked by immigration on a huge scale. In 1800, the entire population of America had been 5.3 million, including about a million slaves, but it rose very, very quickly. And that's why so many of the settlers put themselves through long, dangerous, uncomfortable journeys to head out west. At first, the Native Americans, or should we just call them Indians, took little notice. The only white men they'd ever encountered previously had been mountain men, trappers, traders and the like, who'd often taken Indian wives and learned the ways of their people. But steadily, the white men took their hunting grounds and tried to move them into reservations far away from their own lands. In 1830, the US government had implemented President Andrew Jackson's plan to move the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek and Seminole Indians to a large area west of the Mississippi and had guaranteed them an uninterrupted, uh, an uninterrupted life there forever. Sadly, as the move west progressed, the settlers wanted that land and they often took it. In 1838, just eight years later, the Cherokees were rounded up brutally and marched through a bitter winter through Georgia, Texas, Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky, and finally Arkansas. Of the estimated 17,000 men, women, and children who started the trek, about a quarter died on the way uh, from starvation, maltreatment, or cold. While white Americans sang a jaunty little song, including the words, all I want in this creation is a pretty little girl on a big plantation way down yonder in the Cherokee Nation, and which just shows the, the blasé attitude that, uh, that they had. Just 10 years later, the news reached the East that gold had been discovered in California, and a steady rush of settlers became a panic. Now, to be fair, there was quite a bit of gold that was discovered, starting in January 1848, when somebody called John Sutter found some near his sawmill in the America River, not very far from San Francisco. Within two months, 4,000 prospectors turned up, and some did indeed strike it very lucky, but many didn't. By 1850, there were a quarter of a million non-Californians in the state, most of them from faraway places, a lot from Britain, China, South America, and a surprising number from what, from what we now call Hawaii. Then in 1858, gold was discovered in Colorado, and things got even worse. Denver became a boom town, the Indians were learning that the word of the white men meant nothing. On the northern plains, the Sioux and their allies, the Cheyenne. On the southern plains, the Comanche. And then the deserts of the southwest, the Apache, all decided that they had enough of the white men and decided that they had to reluctantly fight them. And that's where we start getting the cowboys and Indians coming in. You know, if, if their whole being is being taken away, what can they do? And that's how the first real Indian War, Little Crow's War it was called, broke out while the soldiers were busy killing each other in the American Civil War, the Little Crow's War broke out. 
It was all over food and promised money that wasn't handed over to the Sante Indians, a small part of the Sioux tribe. It ended up with many of the tribe being convicted and hanged. Most of the, course, of the court cases lasted less than 10 minutes and ended up with a hanging. This war was typical of many small wars at the time, and the, I'm afraid the end result was equally typical. The Indian Wars only lasted 28 years from beginning to end. Homesteading was very popular. To establish colonies in the West, in 1862, the United States government gave a grant of 160 acres to anyone who wanted it, providing they promised to improve the land and would build a house on it within five years. The houses were often made of turfs, hence the name sodbusters. The promise of free land encouraged massive numbers to move uh, westwards, away from the relatively overcrowded east coast. And the land could be theoretically taken by women or men, and often immigrants from Europe. The federal government distributed two million plots under the 1862 Act, about 270 million acres. Many found their land, their land far too dry, non-productive, and affected by the terrible weather and pests to do anything with. One lady homesteader noted in her diary that she was pondering whether to kill the chicken for food or to keep it alive as the only companion she had. Now, sadly, I don't know what she decided. On the 10th of May, 1869, the last spikes holding down the rails were hammered into place in Utah, and the Central Pacific Railroad met the Union Pacific Railroad. Fortune hunters raced across America on the new railroad system, more than ever before. Most of the men building the railroads were tough, and many of them were Irish. They worked hard, very hard, and expected their three good meals a day. Unfortunately, as the railroads got further and further away from the east, it became harder to get the food to them, and buffalo hunting became big business. Many frontiersmen made it their living, including such names as Wild Bill Hickok, Pat Garrett, Wyatt Earp, the Mastersons, and a young man called William F. Cody, who alone killed over 6,000 animals in one year. 6,000 buffalo in one year. Yeah, that's the year 1867, and became known as Buffalo Bill. This all made the problem worse for the Indians, who relied on the buffalo for food. They used their skins for their teepees, clothes and moccasins, their small bones they used for needles, their sinews they used for ropes. In fact, everything that they needed came from the buffalo. But the buffalo herds were being slaughtered to feed these railroad workers. And when the railroad workers moved on, the white men used the buffalo hides to make leather. Again, the Indians lost out. Now, the guns of the Wild West are quite well known. We don't need to spend long on them. Samuel Colt developed his revolvers, and Winchester developed their equally famous 1873 rifle, the Winchester Repeater. Guns were in everyday use throughout most of the West. <coughs> now we get on to cowboys. As we've seen, the railroads were opening up the country in the 1860s, and the one we want to look at at the moment <coughs> ran to Abilene in Kansas. A 29-year-old livestock trader named Joseph G. McCoy from Chicago looked at the railroad map and had an idea. He knew that the population, largely in the east, wanted beef. He knew that down in the south, there was plenty of lush land available, grassland available, and he could see the line of the railroad was heading down that way. He put these things together and made an absolute fortune, a massive fortune. Rather than come across problems later, he started off by buying the entire town of Abilene. 
I say it's a town, it was actually a very small hamlet. Just a few log cabins and a saloon on 450 acres. He paid $5 an acre. So he had complete control, he owned the lot. Next, McCoy spent up $5,000 getting circulars printed and distributed, promising the Texan cowboys a fair price for cattle at the Abilene Railhead. The result was the Chisholm Trail, which went from the Gulf of Mexico to Abilene. The cattle were half wild, or more than half wild, and long-horned, and they'd come to America, as I said, originally with Columbus on his second voyage. By the end of the Civil War, there were about three million of them roaming the Texas grasslands. In Texas, they sold for just $4 each. But McCoy, the original real McCoy, that, uh, as he became known, would pay $40 in Abilene. That's ten times the price. The journey generally took about three months, uh, about three months, travelling at around one mile an hour. A hundred days after McCoy posted his flyers, a sound like thunder came from the track uh, up from the south and the cowboy legend had started. McCoy had boasted, flippant boast, that he could ship 200,000 in the first 10 years. But he was wrong. He actually shipped over 2 million. 10 times the number he'd even dreamed about. He really was the real McCoy. Obviously, with all these cowboys coming into town with money in their pockets, there was an opening for more saloons and places to sleep. And after the rigours of the trail, who owned the land? Yeah, one Joseph G. McCoy. <laughs> so he was able to open up what he wanted and what he needed. Abilene just grew and grew and grew. By 1870, it boasted four hotels, ten boarding houses, five general stores, and ten saloons. Virtually all were single-storey buildings. Most were the false front to make them look as if they got two storeys and were more impressive. The favourite place in town was the Drover's Cottage on Main Street. Now this was the exception to that, in that it was a three-storey building, a proper three-storey building, and comprised a hundred rooms, and also had a barn that could take a hundred horses and fifty carriages if needed. The cowboys arrived in town after three months or more on the trail, wanting three things. A bath, a woman, and a drink. <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. They always rode from saloon to saloon, no self-respecting cowboy would ever walk across the road. They all had their Stetson hats and their Mexican spurs and a gun or two on their hips, generally a Colt 45. They always drank their liquor neat and drunkenness was the order of the day. Strangely though, the town was, although it was quite violent, nobody was actually killed there in the first two years. But there was a total law and order. The few respectable people in the town employed gunslingers, men who were known for shooting first and asking questions afterwards to keep things contained. These city marshals, as they became known, town police chiefs, I suppose, and not to be confused with the United States marshals, had a tricky job between them keeping the owners of the various establishments in town happy and keeping things reasonably safe. They varied a lot. Some of them were nothing more than psychopaths, while others were good men who had to be good with their fists and guns. Abilene hired Bear River Tom Smith, who gained his nickname in Bear River, Wyoming, where he was town marshal. He made a rule that nobody could carry guns inside the town's borders, and they put up signs to that effect at the, uh, the entry to the town. Unfortunately, as soon as they went up, they were destroyed, shot down. So he decided, uh, he decided he'd build a jail 
One night that got torn down after about three nights, I think it was. Smith was town marshal for five months, and in that time, the respectable people, the respectable few, were so happy with his work that his salary was raised by 50%, but nobody was killed. After this five months, though, Smith went to arrest a man about 10 miles outside town, and he was shot and killed. He was replaced by James Butler Hickok, Wild Bill Hickok, the most famous gunfighter of his time. He'd been born on a farm in Illinois in 1837 and joined the army at the age of 19, where his skill with guns was recognised with his appointment as bodyguard to the general. At 21, he'd left the army and was involved in a gunfight, where he killed three men. After the Civil War, he was involved in a duel where he killed his opponent. He definitely knew Colonel then George A. Custer in Kansas, and although he was town marshal and sometimes sheriff in in a succession of different places, he admitted to having killed at least 38 men. He started to go blind and retired at the ripe old age of 39. Ancient, wasn't he? <laughs> God, dear, oh dear. And he went to live in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He was shot in the back of the head during a card game in Deadwood, South Dakota, shortly after, after he married his long-term golf, girlfriend, Agnes Lee. The cards he was holding were black aces, black eights, and the jack of diamonds, which apparently is still known as the dead man's hand. In 1871, Abilene was no longer the main railroad centre, the latest one being Wichita, which was another town completely and utterly owned by Joseph G. McCoy. It followed a very similar pattern to Abilene and was the birthplace of Henry McCarty. Anybody know who Henry McCarty was? You will who later changed his name to William H. Bonney, better known as Billy the Kid. Eventually, Wichita became superseded in 1875, it was four years later, by Dodge City. There were, there were lots of gunfights in Dodge City, often involving the Masterson brothers, Ed, Jim, and Bat, who all owned businesses there, all, and all were town marshals in the 1870s. Cowboys, let's get this clear, Cowboys were not the well-groomed, handsome men that we know from the films. They weren't those sort of people at all. Most were very rough, tough, and usually itinerant labourers working 14, 15 hours a day for very, very little pay. They came from all over, Mexicans, British, American Indians, most other places. One in seven of them were, were, were ex-slaves, Afro-Caribbeans. One of the greatest, and if I can say that, man-killers of the West was John Wesley Hardin, known as Wes Hardin. He was the son of a Methodist preacher. Obviously didn't run in the blood, did it? Uh, who was born in Texas in 1853. Now, there was no doubt that he was, he was an out-and-out -out racist. He was a dreadful, dreadful man. He killed his first victim, a former slave, when he was 15, and went to hide in his aunt's house. Three Union soldiers came to arrest him, so he killed them. By the age of 18, he'd killed 27 men. He married his 14-year-old girlfriend before he was eventually captured, but by then he'd probably killed another 10 men. He was tried at Comanche and sentenced to 25 years in jail. He spent his time there studying theology and law. <laughs> it makes you wonder, doesn't it? He was pardoned in 1894, aged 41, and was almost immediately, within about a fortnight, 
he was accepted as a barrister in the state. Before he got out of prison, his young wife had died. So at 41, he married another 13-year-old teenager, Carolyn, who he had allegedly won in a poker game. But after two weeks, he was fed up with her, so he sent her back to her parents. Harding went to El Paso and set up a law practice and got involved with, with the wife of one of his clients, a lady called Beulah. He conspired with Deputy U.S. Marshal George Scarborough to entice the, the woman's husband, Beulah's husband, to come to Harding's house, where they promptly killed him. Harding was shot in the back of the head in 1895 and is buried in El Paso. Now, I mentioned Billy the Kid, William H. Bonney. Uh, his early life is a mystery. He was born Henry McCarty, as I mentioned, in Wichita, and his mother probably died when he was very young. He became a horse thief in Arizona and was definitely jailed for larceny. When he got out of jail, he killed a man, escaped over the border into New Mexico, that's 1877, where he became a cowboy. He wasn't known as Billy the Kid at the time. That only, only came a bit later. He changed his name from Henry McCarty to William H. Bonney at about this time, presumably as an alias. Uh, I can only assume that. After a short career as a cowboy, he emerged as the leader of the Tunstall McSween faction. He was involved in many bloody shootouts and killings, including the assassination of the local sheriff and his deputy. He was also involved in the five-day battle of Blazer's Mill in July 1868, where he killed numerous people. For almost a year, Bonnie seems to have expected the state governor, Lou Wallace, to pardon him. I cannot for the life of me think why he would think that the state governor would pardon him, but he was working under that illusion. Lou Wallace, the governor, failed to do so. Then in November 1880, Pat Garrett was elected sheriff of Lincoln County with a sole responsibility of capturing or killing the kid. Very soon, the next, the next month in fact, Garrett had killed the kid's two business partners and he jailed Billy in Santa Fe. Billy was tried and sentenced to hang at Lincoln, but he escaped after killing two deputies. Apparently he rode away singing. Pat Garrett was commissioned to find him again and bring him back again, dead or alive again. It was expected that Billy would cross the nearby border into Old Mexico, where no lawman could touch him. But Garrett found him just 150 miles north of Lincoln. Found him and shot him in his girlfriend's bedroom at midnight, on the stroke of midnight. He was probably just 20 years old. Wyatt Earp had been dispensing law at Wichita and then Dodge City, and ended up at Tombstone, Arizona, with his two brothers, Morgan and Virgil and their wives at the end of 1879. Tombstone was again close to the Mexican border. It was a silver mining town. Wyatt had decided he was tired of lawing, as he put it, and took a job as a security guard for Wells Fargo. But soon he became deputy sheriff, and his brother Morgan took his old job. The three brothers were buying up mining claims and trying to get established in business. Wyatt ran for sheriff, but he lost the election in 1881. Virgil was appointed chief of police and Morgan became a special officer. Now the Earps had an enemy in town, a man called Clanton, who together with his three sons, Ike, Finn and Billy, were rustlers. A stagecoach was attacked and robbed near contention and two men were killed. A posse was formed, including the three Earps and others, who arrested a man called Luther King three days later. 
king named three others who were involved. He was jailed in Tombstone, but escaped soon afterwards and disappeared. Wyatt Earp was disappointed because he had hoped the arrest would help him in the forthcoming election for sheriff and cut a deal with Ike Clandon. If, if Ike would tell him where to find the three killers, he, Wyatt that is, would settle for the publicity for finding the killers and would give the Wells Fargo reward money to Ike. The deal fell apart when two of the killers were themselves killed in New Mexico. Then in July, Wyatt's friend, the consumptive dentist John Henry Doc Holliday, known as Doc, fell out with his lover. We're going to hear a bit more about that later. She swore an affidavit that Doc had been involved in the robbery. It was all found to be completely untrue afterwards, but the reputation of the Earps was tainted. This brings us to the gunfight at the OK Corral. On the 26th of October 1881, the Earps learned that a very drunk Ike Clandon was prowling the streets and looking for a fight. Uh, Virgil Earp found him and got him into court and had him fined $27.50. This set up the gunfight. The Earps, Doc Holliday and Sheriff John Behan, knew the Clandons were out to get them and caught up with them in a vacant building site. Wyatt handed Holliday his shotgun, telling him to keep it under his coat and out of sight. As the Earps and friends approached, the Clandons and their friends backed into the 18-foot-wide space, and then the shooting started. It was over in well under 30 seconds. Two of Clandon's clan were dead. Billy Clandon was mortally wounded. Morgan and Virgil received slight wounds and Doc Holliday got a nick. Afterwards, Sheriff, Sheriff John Behan tried to arrest the Earps, who refused to be arrested. Uh, and that was, uh, that was because um, they were alleged to have shot down men with their hands in the air. But nobody knows the truth. A couple of months later, Virgil was shot and his left arm was useless for the rest of his life. And the following March, Morgan was shot dead while playing pool. I didn't know that pool existed in those days until I found this. And the surviving Earps caught a train to California. Wyatt refereed a big boxing match in 1896, dabbled in investments a bit, and opened a couple of uh, saloons. He finally died in 1929, surprisingly recently. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is published by the Mr. T Podcast Studio.